0: Read verses 20 through 22 now. If you'd stand with me for the honor of reading God's word together, let's read Leviticus, which is just as much God's divinely inspired word as the Gospel of John, chapter 16, 20 through 22. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all of the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we, we do pray that this morning you would speak to us through your word. Father, we confess that this is your word, that it is holy, that it is inspired, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to convict us of sin, able to teach us, correct us, rebuke us. Lord, this word is able to build up your body. So, Father, we know that apart from the work of your spirit and apart from your grace, it will do none of these things. So, Lord, we pray that your spirit would work through your word, that you would show us grace now. We ask that the Holy Spirit would work mightily among us, And we're asking this, praying this in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So most of us are probably vaguely familiar with the term whipping boy, right? Everybody heard that term before? Even though we may not really understand its exact meaning or its exact origin, Uh, We are familiar with that term. Well, in the modern lexicon, a whipping boy denotes a person who is innocent, who takes the blame and punishment of someone who is guilty. That's a whipping boy. According to Wikipedia, a whipping boy was originally a young boy assigned to a young prince who was punished when the prince misbehaved or fell behind in his schooling. The role of the whipping boy was actually established in the English court during the monarchs, during the 15th and 16th centuries. Many English princes had courtiers of their age who would be punished and beaten in the place of their royal master as a way of educating him on matters of morality. How would you like that job, right? Can you imagine The prince refuses to eat his dinner, so the whipping boy is called in and beaten in front of the prince in order to teach the prince that he needs to eat the food that's put in front of him. It is hard to imagine that that was actually effective in any way, shape, or form. Long before, though, there were whipping boys, there were scapegoats. Like whipping boys, scapegoats were an innocent party that took upon themselves the punishment of others and bore them away from the community. The scapegoat was used, in this instance, to carry the sins of Israel away from the nation into the wilderness where it was cut off from the people of Israel and out of the presence of God. The scapegoat, you see, replaced Israel. Israel's sin should have been driven from the presence of God, but instead the scapegoat filled that role. That's really the big idea of the passage we're going to look at today. Chapter 16 As a whole is really a manual for what is called the Day of Atonement. It addresses and instructs the priest on how they were to go about participating in the Day of Atonement in order to atone for the sins of the people. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through much of chapter 16 and and see how much of this Day of Atonement really communicates to us much about our Lord Jesus Christ before we actually drive in our text, we're going to talk about this day of atonement. We're going to stop in different matters and talk about how it relates to Christ. Then we're going to look at verses 20 through 22, our text of the day, and apply some lessons for us. Before we get there, I really want us to understand the importance of this day. The day of atonement. It was... The most significant day in the life of an ancient Israelite. Some would say that Christmas is the most significant day, or Easter is the most significant day in the life of a Christian, but in the life of an Israelite, uh, those things hadn't happened yet. and So the Day of Atonement really was their most important day. It was celebrated on the 10th day of the 7th month, the 7th month being considered the most sacred month in the Israelite calendar. This act was only performed one day a year. In fact, the whole community was instructed to afflict itself and and even practice self-denial on this one day a year. So the instructions for the Day of Atonement, they're placed right here in chapter 16, which is a pivotal part in the book of Leviticus as a whole. So for all these reasons and everything that Brother Bob read, it's easy to understand why the rabbis came to refer to it simply as the day. It was the most significant day in the day of an Israelite. It was an important day. So not surprisingly, we find in various and significant ways all kinds of types of shadows pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we go through this text, let's look at what this ritual itself looks like. Many of you, has anyone ever been to the Holy Land down in Orlando? They kind of practice and give this picture of what this Day of Atonement looks like. But I want to point out in chapter 16 uh, what happens, what the ritual looks like, and then how in each individual of these parts of this ritual, Christ is actually the true and better fulfillment of all these things we have in the Day of Atonement. So in verses 1 through 3, we have the prologue. There's this warning that's given to Aaron to to not come whenever and however he wanted into the presence of the Lord. Instead, the Lord would actually tell him exactly the way he ought to enter into the holy of holies. We're reminded through that warning that the Lord is holy and people are sinful, (laughs) Therefore, in order to to come into the presence of God, we must be invited, we must be called, and the Lord must provide the way. So in, in verses 3 through 28, we find the way that Aaron and the high priest who would succeed him would be able to enter into the holy holies in order to make atonement for the people. So let's think about this. First, Aaron was to bathe himself. He had to take a bath. He was to take off his royal vestiges and bathe his body. But then, did you notice what we read? He was to put on his linen undergarment, his linen coat and sash and turban. Linen, by the way, was very simple attire. Aaron actually had to set aside his royal attire. If you remember, when Aaron was consecrated, he had all of the the nice coats. He had the ephod and the breastplates, and they were all uh, uh, bejeweled with precious stones. He even had a turban with a, with a crown on it. He looked holy unto the Lord. He was in wonderful, beautiful clothing. This was royal attire. And for this very special day, he set his royal attire aside and put on the clothing of really a servant. That sound familiar? <laughs> Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7. This is what we read about the Lord Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking on the form of a bond and being made in the likeness of men. See even this This clothing ritual, what Aaron foreshadowed by setting aside his royal garb and clothing himself in the clothes of a servant, Christ accomplished by setting aside his divine prerogatives and humbling himself, taking on a full human nature. But Christ, of course, did not just do this for one day a year and an annual day of atonement. Instead, he did it for the day of Calvary. The once and for all day of atonement that did away with the sin of God's people forever. So Aaron bathed himself. Aaron properly dressed himself. We find next, as we go through chapter 16, that Aaron was to sacrifice a bull for himself and his household. Really, his household would mean the priesthood for the Levites, the high priest took the blood of the bull from the bull into the holy of holies. He also took a a censer of coals of fire into that most holy place, and he placed incense on it right before the mercy seat in order to form a cloud of incense that might cover the mercy seat. Why? So that Aaron would not die. (laughs) Why would he die if he entered into the holy holies? Well, we talked about it. people were sinful. God is holy. If you enter into the presence of God without atoning for your sins, you will die. Aaron was sinful. Aaron could not behold the glory of God and gaze unprotected upon the Lord. And listen, there's no parallel to this part to Christ. In fact, just the opposite is true of Christ. We actually read that because Jesus is holy, innocent, unsustained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like the high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and for the sins of the people, since he died once for all when he offered up himself. You see the contrast even here? Aaron, before he was ever even able to enter into the Holy of Holies, must offer a sacrifice of purification for himself and for his family. Christ had no need for that. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily on behalf of himself because he's perfect, he's spotless. So Aaron offers his purification offering, he takes the bull, he kills him, brings the blood into the Holy of Holies, he would actually sprinkle the blood, he would have some sort of pan or something he would take with his fingers, and he would sprinkle the blood upon the Holy Seat. Sounds pretty gross, right? And after Aaron made the atonement for himself, he took the two goats offered on behalf of the people, he cast lots for them, and he designates one for the Lord and one who would be the scapegoat. So after Aaron determines the fate of the two goats, he takes the one that's designated as the the purification offering and he sacrifices it. Just as he did with the bull that was sacrificed on behalf of himself and the priest. Aaron takes that blood of that goat into the Holy of Holies to offer it as a purification offering. The writer of Hebrews makes clear that this ministry on the Day of Atonement was foreshadowing the perfect work of Jesus Christ. This is what the writer of Hebrews writes. He says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats. And calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. That's the picture here. So, so Aaron is entering into the Holy of Holies in order to make atonement for the people, yet Christ, the better, the true high priest, enters once for all into the Holy of Holies, not by the means or the way of blood and goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, and he secures our eternal redemption. Once for all, done. Let's go back to Aaron. Aaron, after cleansing the Holy of Holies, cleansing the tent of meeting, Aaron took the blood of the bull and the goat and purified the blood of burnt offerings as well. He actually is working his way out. He's starting in the center, the Holy of Holies, and he goes into the tent of meeting, and then finally the altar of burnt offering. In fact, in this day of atonement, it actually covers the geography of Israel. It moves from the very heart of their worship into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was to the wilderness as the goat that it's taken to a place that is cut off. So this is what happens next. Aaron then takes uh, the scapegoat. And Aaron places both of his hands on its head and he begins to confess all the iniquities, all the transgressions, all the sins of the people over it. And this goat was given to someone and it was led far away from the camp. Then after bathing once again, Aaron changes back into his high priestly royal attire and performs two more burnt offerings, one for the priesthood and one for the people. Likewise, Christ, after offering his once for all sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, he entered into glory and continues his high priestly work. We shouldn't lose sight of that ever. Yes, Christ gave a once for all sacrifice, but Christ still is working and he still continues to work as the high priest on our behalf, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. It's what the author of Hebrews says yet again. He teaches us that Christ is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But he no longer has to offer burnt offerings on the altar. Instead, what he offers is his people. You see, we are the offering that is being offered up to God. God is is calling us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. He's empowering us by his spirit to live for God the Father through him, through Christ. The burnt offering at the end symbolizes that whole life devotion is now actualized in the lives of God's people found in Christ. So the burnt offering for the priest and the people, that would bring the rituals and the sacrifices of the day of atonement to a close. That's chapter 16 in a nutshell. That's what had to happen in order for Israel to atone for their sins. Now, what I'd like to do is focus in on verses 20 through 22. Because in this passage... We focus in on that scapegoat. A scapegoat to bear Israel's sin away. We, we see that the scapegoat received the sin of God's people. Think about that. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of this live goat and confess all the iniquities of the people, all their transgressions, all their sins. He shall put them on the head of the goat. Just picture this Actually sounds kind of loony when you think about it in some ways. But, but mind you this, that the term used for sin is, is not just unintentional sin that's been covered throughout the year. This actually also covers hard-heartedness and, and, and rebellion. There was hope even for the most hard-hearted of Israel on the Day of Atonement. It's a wonderful thing to think about. After the confession had taken place, the sins were transferred to the goat, and the goat carried the sins of God's people away. We read, actually, that he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by hand of a man who stands in readiness. That is, one guy who just had this job, he was assigned this job, he was to take the goat, lead it outside the camp to a place that was cut off. Very many different theories about what this looked like, how far it was taken. But the picture is the sins of Israel on a goat being removed uh, away uh, from God's presence. And it removed the sin of God's people. That's what it tells us. And Verse 22 says, "...the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness." solitary land. It could be translated a cut off place. See, the goat's not just taken far away, but the goat is taken to a place where it will never return. Why? Remember, this is, is foreshadowing. Mean, this is a picture. Just as the sin is taken far away where it will never return to fall upon God's people once again, it's removed from God's sight. This is the picture. And, and guys, this is a Poignant reminder of the effect of sin. And that's something we need to see here. Sin separates people from God. Do you understand that? That which is sinful cannot remain in God's presence. We see that from the very beginning, right? Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden. And what happens? They are driven from God's presence. Adam and Eve did not have a scapegoat. They bore their own sins and carried them out of the presence of God. In the case of Israel, God graciously provides the scapegoat ritual because because if not, it would be the nation of Israel that would have to leave the camp. Uh, Don't miss this. The, The fate of the scapegoat is what the Israelites deserve. It's what we deserve, They deserve to be cut off from the camp of Israel. They deserve to be driven away from the covenant Lord. They deserve to bear their own sins in the wilderness. In fact, this ritual foreshadows something that would become the eventual consequences of Israel's ongoing serious and unrepentant sin. If you know history, if you know church history, this is what would happen to Israel eventually. Israel bore their own sins into exile, didn't they? In different times in Israel's history, they displayed lesser and greater degrees of faithfulness to God's law. But as history marched on, the lesser degrees became more and more prominent and characteristic of the nation as a whole. Israel wanted to become like the nations around them, and so they became like the nations around them. They disregarded the Lord's law and the sacrificial system that the Lord graciously gave them to protect them. So God sends a a prophet, Amos, and Amos prophesies against this, and uh, God explains this to them in Amos 5. He says, I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them and I will not even look upon those peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Eventually, the judgment of God fell upon them instead of the scapegoat. History tells us in 722 BC, northern Israel is carried away with its sins into exile. The Assyrians served as the hand of a man who stands in readiness to lead the Israelites away into captivity. They led northern Israel away to a place where they were cut off from the land of promise and from the special presence of the Lord. Oh, how they must have longed for the scapegoat in that day. In 586 B.C., Judah, too, carried its own sins into the wilderness. In their case, the Babylonians served as the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The southern kingdom was cut off from the promised land. They were cut off from the presence of God, the special presence of their Lord. Oh, how they must have longed for a scapegoat in their day. Friends, with all this said... What's the point, right? What does that mean for us today? Well, I just want to give you two really quick lessons we can learn in light of what happened to Israel here. Uh, First, the first lesson is this. Sins that are not carried away from people eventually carry people away from the Lord. I want you to hear that. Sins that are not carried away from people Eventually, carry people away from the Lord. This is what happened with Israel. They they forsook the Day of Atonement. They forsook the rituals and sacrifices the Lord gave them. The high priest had intermingled with pagan rituals. And so, instead of having something that carried their sins away from the Lord, their sins carried them away from God's presence. Inevitably, this happens. As we see clearly from Leviticus, God will not overlook sin. God will not allow sin to remain in his presence. So, if sin is not disposed of, the sinner will be. I want you to think about that. If sin is not disposed of, the sinner will be. Lesson number two. The day of atonement and the scapegoat did not work Ex opere operato. Now, that's a Latin phrase. I couldn't even think of how to phrase this sentence without this phrase. It simply means by the works of works themselves. Okay? The day of atonement and the scapegoat, they did not work ex opere operato. It means the works did not work by the works themselves. See, this is the point of this. The the work here, the, the work of the scapegoat, the work of the day of atonement it really accomplished nothing on its own but it required as it's always required for god's people to come to him it required faith and repentance you, you couldn't just go through the motions and have your sins carried away god required that these rituals be accompanied by repentance in fact if you go on to read the rest of of, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 23 and on, you will see that God required that the people humble themselves, that they repent on a continual basis. David makes that point clear in Psalm 51 that we know well, right? Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David says, For you, God, do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. See, this has always been the case. Faith and repentance have always been necessary for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. didn't change. Nothing changed there. Repenting of sin and trusting that God save us was as important to the sacrificial system of Old Testament Israel as repentance and faith is to salvation in Christ in the church today. All of these considerations of the importance of the scapegoat, they ultimately find their meaning and fulfillment in Christ because Christ is the true and better scapegoat. See, the the ritual of the scapegoat it ultimately prefigured the work of Christ in burying away the sins of the world. That's what it was meant to do. Who, who wrote scripture, folks? God did. Uh, the, the work of Christ as our sin-bearing scapegoat was foretold even by Isaiah shortly after the time of Amos' prophecy, which we read earlier. In Isaiah 53, 6, Isaiah explained then that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's the scapegoat. Isaiah also records that the suffering servant would would bear the sins of many. He would be our sin bearer and make intercession for the transgressors. He would bear the sins of many and he would carry it away. Uh, John the Baptist recognized this, didn't he? As the, as he recognized Jesus as the one who would bear the sins of the world when he proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Likewise, the Apostle Paul echoes the scapegoat ritual when he writes in his second letter to Corinthians. Second Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him sin. That is, he put on Christ our sin. Christ bore our sin for our sake that we might be reconciled to God. So the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, like the scapegoat, carried our sin outside the camp. When he wrote this, he says, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the gate. Peter explains in 1 Peter 2:24 that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. And, and that's something we can just skip over very quickly. We're likely to miss the significance of that, right? But what you don't know is that Peter was referring to Deuteronomy 21, 22, 23, that reads this If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. So so when Peter writes that Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross, that is Christ took upon our sins, he carried them far away and took upon himself the curse due to those sins. He He was a cursed man, though he never sinned. He received the curse that was due to us for our sins. Christ willingly took, The sins of his people upon himself. And he bore them outside the city. He bore them on the cross, which was the curse and the penalty and consequence due to them. Friends, in so doing, he separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Do you realize that? So the writer of Hebrews, he reminds us in Hebrews 9, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That means something for us today, church. It means that the Day of Atonement has been replaced by the Day of Calvary. Think about this. As you you ponder this passage, the Day of Atonement has been replaced by the Day of Calvary. Calvary the means are still the same. We still must come to Christ with a broken spirit, with a broken and contrite heart. Remember, we talk about repentance. Repentance is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing posture towards the Lord in our ever-growing hatred for sin and our ever-increasing desire and ability to forsake our sin. But repentance is a lifestyle for the people of God. Not a lifestyle that is marked, by the way, by gloominess or depression. It's a lifestyle that's actually marked by the opposite. Because for the people of God, repentance always leads to gratitude and joy, for we know and trust that our sins have been carried away. It's because repentance does not stand alone, but it's always accompanied by faith. We come to Christ trusting that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. Therefore, our sin is no more. Listen, Christian, this is why if we ever strive to attain a righteousness of our own, we strive in vain. Instead, we wage war against the flesh because our Lord and Savior has done away with our sin in his body. So so we strive to become what we already are in the sight of God. I want to be clear. I want you to hear this. Jesus, for his church, for those who are his children, has borne each and every sin away forever. He's done it. He's accomplished this. Jesus has borne each and every sin away forever. That's why when Paul starts his, his, his letter in, in Romans chapter 8, he's become this huge climax of this doctrinal passage. He says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Christ has borne our sins away. Each and every one, actually, forever. So... So let me ask you this morning, church family, what plagued you from your past? What sin, what transgression continues to tempt you to despair? What sin continues to define who you think you are? If what scripture tells us about our sin is in God's sight is true and we know that it is, then we must learn to see our sin in the same way. We are tempted to throw contempt on the sin-bearing work of Christ by allowing our past to dictate our present. It is so true in so many ways. And if we repent, we so often repent in gloominess and despair Friends, repentance always leads to gratitude and joy. Because that sin, if you were in Christ, that sin you're repenting of in your ongoing battle with the flesh has been bore away already by Christ. He's not surprised by it. He's not disappointed in you. He's died for you. He's done away. It's been accomplished. He's still working you, yes, by his spirit to make you like Christ. But friends, your sin, they are separated from you. When God sees you, he sees you as perfect and holy and righteousness. And if that doesn't bring you some sort of joy and repentance, I don't know what will. Cuz you deserve to have your sins upon you. You deserve the wrath of God. But oh, how Jesus is so gracious to give us not what we deserve. Our sin has been removed from God's sight. In God's mind, to recall our sin is to recall Christ' perfect once and for all sacrifice. Do you understand that? To recall our sins is at the very same time, in the very same moment, to recall Christ' perfect once for all sin bearing sacrifice. Is how it ought to be with us. When when Satan tempts us to despair, to recall our sin, and to live in that gloominess and despair, the saints must learn to recall the reflection of the glory of Jesus' sin-bearing work. What a wretched man am I. Wretched is my sin. But more glorious, more perfect, and more faithful is my God and Savior. He did not simply carry away my past sins. No, they have all been born away, each and every one. What joy and gratitude the saints ought to have in light of this truth. So in conclusion, I I want us to return to where we began. Consider the whipping boy, a servant who was beaten to protect the king Now consider the prince of peace, the son of the king of the universe, the prince of the universe that was beaten and killed to protect his servants. I think when we think about Jesus in this way, we are forced to respond the same way that Paul responded in his doxology in Romans 11, where he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Church, rejoice. Your sins, if you were in Christ, have been born away from you by Christ himself. Oh, what love. Oh, what grace. Oh, what mercy. Now we strive to, to live for Christ each and every day with joy and gratitude, repenting of that sin. But friends, when we repent of that sin, we truly repent of that sin, it's not hanging over us. It's done away with completely, already. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I want you to stand as we close in prayer together. Gracious Father, there's such great comfort in these words. Lord, that a goat was able to bear the sins of Israel away even for just a moment. How much more your son was able to bear away the sins of your people forever. Nothing can separate us from your love, Jesus. Regardless of the lies of the accuser, regardless of the ongoing battle that we must fight with our flesh, we have victory in Christ. We have gratitude and joy grounded in the sin-bearing work of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would therefore be a people that is marked by joy and by constant gratitude. It's marked by worship. That is your will for us, stated clearly in your word, that we would be a people of prayer, joy, and thanksgiving. What reason we find for that here in your word. So we thank you, Father. Lord, we we ask if there's a Christian here who's who's constantly letting that sin define who they are, Father, that if, if they know they're in Christ, they would... They would be free from... would live in the freedom that they have in you as opposed to thinking they're enslaved to this sin. Father, they would do battle with the flesh continually. They would never stop fighting sin in their own lives, but they would know that if they're in Christ, you have promised to bear their sins away. If you already accomplished it on the cross. But Father, I... I do not doubt that there may be some here this morning who because they've never repented and placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they themselves are still bearing their own sin in your eyes. Father, your word tells us that we all pass away, we all die, and after that death comes judgment. Father, if we do not have Christ bearing our sin from us, then we will bear the wrath for all eternity that our sins so richly deserve. So if there's anyone here, Father, who's still bearing their sin, I pray in Jesus' name that they would hear the gospel, they would hear what you've done for them on their behalf, and they would repent and receive you. They would receive the gift of you bearing their sins away from them and giving them the righteous standing that you have freely as they trust you As their life is changed by you, so that they may be saved. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's bearing their own sins this morning, they would feel the weight of that sin. And Lord, they would come to you, receive you, and they would feel themselves casting that burden of their sin upon you. Lord, we're trusting and asking you to do only what you can do. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.